Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. Harry Partridge is a structural engineer. He ran his own firm, Partridge Engineering, for over 30 years, taking pride in delivering strong, safe buildings. But early on, Harry knew something was missing. So he went in search of inspiration, creative expression and art in his life and in his work. Now with his firm Cultural Capital, Harry works with artists and developers to bring public art to new communities. And he wants to bring the arts into the education of young engineers. It's really rare to meet an engineer who's also an artist, and even rarer to find one who loves words as much as maths. Find out why architects and engineers are set up to be arch enemies, and what happens when you let 250 engineering students loose with coloured paints. We're in Harry's office overlooking Camperdown Memorial Park in Newtown, Sydney. The only thing between us and the rest of the busy office is a long black curtain. Great for a dramatic backdrop, but useless for sound control. But don't let a bit of background noise distract you from the gold Harry's got for us. Let's get down to the good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. My name's Harry Partridge. I'm the Director of Cultural Capital, which is an agency, a consulting agency, looking into creating healthier communities in terms of their culture and in terms of their public art. We started off being public art consultants. Now um, we're giving advice to people on the culture of their new community. In a new development, there'll be a new community. So we're giving advice on how that community can, can become healthy. So I'm keen to get information that'll help practising landscape architects and architects yes. and engineers now who are in project meetings and they might be butting heads with their architect or their engineer, whatever it is, yes. and not really knowing why. Just, ah, oh, this person doesn't get me or they don't get the project. They don't get why this is so important. Sure. So when, let's say, two people are communicating, um, it's called a dialogue, but it's not really. It's really a trialogue because there is a third element in any communication and most people don't realise that. And you don't know what the third element no, is. No, I want to ask you, what's the third element? The, the, the third element is um, something uh, perhaps quite mysterious and something between us, some nebulous thing in this space, which is uh, mutual understanding. And we always forget that. We always forget that it's this mutual understanding between us that we can tap into. Can you describe that a bit more? What's I'll required tell, for that mutual understanding? Um, I'll tell you a story. The two boys in, let's say, Bulgaria. Um, one lives in a very, very remote village and one day he needs to go to school. 
and all the people in his very small village are shepherds for black sheep. They, they only raise black sheep. And so he goes to school and he becomes friends with another boy who comes from a different part of Bulgaria, um, where all the sheep are the sheep that we know, white sheep. So they're out on an excursion one day and the boy from the black sheep village sees a white sheep and he says, look at that, isn't that extraordinary, there's a white sheep. And the other boy says, well, nothing extraordinary about it, all, sh all sheep are white. And the other boy says, no, they're not, all sheep are black. So they have a fight. Right? And the, f the fight is because there's a lack of understanding. It's because neither boy is prepared to give way to what his set of beliefs are. So when you say, what is this understanding between, it, it, maybe it's a broader view. Maybe it's the ability not to impose my ideas on the other. How often do you think that kind of mutual understanding is present in um, a typical work situation like a meeting? I'd say really. It's more present when women are in that meeting, okay. in my experience. So following on from those two boys, there's another two boys. This is another story. And the two boys are friends at school and they play a lot all through high school and they're very similar in their taste. But one has slightly more leaning towards maths and science and the other has slightly more leaning towards Shakespeare, humanities, and he draws from time to time. So because of those slight variations in temperament, one goes into architecture school and one goes into engineering school. Now, the one that goes into architecture school, you know the sort of training that he would get. And he does a lot of drawing, a lot of painting, a lot of history, very little maths, no maths, probably no science, no chemistry. A little bit. He might be taught a little bit about structures. But it's even worse for the boy who goes into engineering because for the next four years of his life, and I can attest to this from my own experience, there will be not a single book, a piece of literature, set as a piece of reading. There'll be no humanities. There'll be no geography. There'll be no Shakespeare. There'll be no plays, poetry. There'll certainly be no art. In fact, Everything that happens will be fiercely rational, mathematical. So his initial inclinations are strengthened and solidified. And the same with the architect. So then they graduate and they get jobs. The, the engineer, he goes into what is a fairly typical engineering design role, um, which is designing things for developers and builders. Developers and builders are interested in one thing, which is the bottom line, profit. But the, the engineer is interested then in what the client's interested in, but he's also interested in safety. That's his duty to the community. So he finds himself following all the rules and regulations, mathematical formula to ensure that the building is safe. But he also has this other pressure to ensure that it's as cheap as he possibly can. So he finds himself, or herself, walking along this quite narrow pathway. On one side, the safety, on the other side is cost. The safer it is, the more it costs. The less it costs, the, the, the closer you come to the safety margins. So that road can become quite narrow. And many engineers, and I've worked for engineers, they take great pride in 
in walking along the narrowest path they possibly can. They take great pride in finding little tricks in the codes and tricks to do so that they can make something cheaper. And they become very, very efficient at doing that. Hearing Harry tell this story was a revelation for me. I've worked with many engineers and never understood why they operated in this methodical way. Now I get it. I asked Harry which boy he was in the story, rational or artistic, and he said that he could have gone either way, that deciding between architecture and engineering was really tough. But he chose engineering and loved it, didn't think about architecture again until he graduated and went travelling overseas. And we travelled um, through Japan and we caught the Trans-Siberian Railway line. This was in the height of the Cold War in the early 70s. And we got to um, Moscow and got to Red Square and I saw St Basil's Cathedral for the first time. I had never seen an image of it and I thought, oh, the circus has come to town. And so I walked across Red Square and I walked around the back of St Basil's so I could see all the, the hoarding and the scaffolding that was keeping this circus up. <laughs> and there was no hoarding, there was, no, there was a real building. And I was thrown into a complete dilemma oh. that here was this, in the height of the Cold War, in dour, dark, dingy Russia, w with all the layers of secret police and around, that this astonishing building could exist in that country, and mm. it was real. Mm. So that, that was an absolute um, extraordinary moment for me. Mm. And then I knew something was missing, something was wrong. Then you knew something was missing. Did you find then that you could bring some of your interest in the humanities and art and literature, and, and did you find you could bring that into your work? No, at that stage I was interested in walking along this very fine road. I was interested in doing the cheapest design I could for clients, but still staying on the right side of the safety factors. And I walked on that road for maybe 10 or 15 years. So Harry trod this narrow road, but at the same time felt the need to break away from it. He knew from day one that he wanted to work with architects, to learn from their creativity, to see what other possibilities could come from their way of thinking. I asked Harry about his best collaboration experience. There was one particular um, time, and this was in the days before computer visualisation or before um, CAD, really, and so everything was hand sketches. And there was three of us in a room, um, quite a well-known architect and his assistant and myself, and we had some building issues to resolve, and. We didn't use pencil and paper, we just used words. And with our words, we were able to construct the, the virtual image of this area of building. And it was floating in the air between us. And each of us could refer to this virtual model and talk it through and say, oh no, you can't put the downpipe there because of this. And none of us said anything about it, but it was almost perfect communication. And then when it was over, um, the architect was able to put everything down on paper. And all three of us knew that we'd been through a special experience. It's that mutual understanding you were talking about. Yes. 
but it went further than that in that we created this shared image. Three imaginations came together and we could take things out and put it back into this virtual model. It's extraordinary. And what about then moving on into other projects? I mean, I guess I have a question. Did you ever feel looked down on for not operating in that creative way that architects operate in? Oh, yes, always. Always? Yes. Tell me about that. The first job I got as a design engineer working with architects before I formed my own company, there was um, great enmity between the two disciplines. And the engineers I worked with would be forever putting the architects down. What would they say? Oh, they say, this is stupid. What does he know? Look what he's... I'd burst into your room and say, look what he's done now. And it'd be a piece of architecture. And sometimes it was silly because it didn't work. But sometimes it was just a good piece of design. But there was... In the whole office, there was this derision for, for anything architects came up with. And on the other side, I could see that architects had a very low opinion of engineers, a very low opinion of, of them understanding anything except the most simple and basic principles of how to put a building together. And I joined in in all of that as a young engineer. But eventually I realised that that just wasn't right. And the, the architects had something um, quite different to, to offer. Sometimes I feel like that those entrenched ideas of your own disciplines can begin at university and for some not really change throughout their careers. An, an extreme example is if you have an engineer who's been walking this very narrow path, working with builders, and then suddenly he's asked to work with an architect. And the architect might be a very, very creative architect, let's say he is, and he wants to design a house for a very wealthy man. And this house needs to be very elegant. He doesn't want any columns in there at all. So he's, he's coming to the conference table with this image of this extreme elegance, falling waters personified. Uh, the engineer comes to the table and he's got in his mind uh, 400 by 400 concrete columns on a grid of eight metres by eight metres. If he pushes it, he'd rather have six by six. <laughs> yeah. So these two combatants come together and, and what possibility do they have of reaching agreement. And it's, it's the boy who's only ever seen black sheep and the boy who's only ever seen... So the first thing in communication is you have to give up. You have to give up something of yourself. And everyone says you have to listen, but it's more than listening. You can listen as long as you like, but it doesn't mean you're going to change. You actually have to come to the table and give up something. Give up something of yourself something of your attitudes and ideas. And the architect or whatever discipline is opposite you needs to do the same needs thing. Needs to do the same. And, and it's only then when you give up, and the more you give up, the easier it is to come to this central space between you where um, this mutual understanding is possible. Sounds good in theory, right? I wanted to know if Harry was able to bring these insights into his work at Partridge. And he admitted it was hard when you're running a business and getting projects across the line. But he encouraged a culture of listening, understanding and creativity in the company. 
And for five or six years, Partridge sponsored a prize for Sydney Uni architecture students with the best grasp of structures. Before Harry realised, he had it back to front. The real effort was needed back in the engineering faculty. So when an opportunity came up to give a guest lecture to final year engineering students, he insisted that it be about art. And so then I was thrown into it, lecturing to, well, it started off with 100 students and it went up to 250, uh, lecturing on art. I had a whole series of slides showing some of the classic, iconic buildings in the world. And then I'd have a quote from the engineer who designed those buildings. But every single quote was about beauty, was about aesthetics, was about music and art which is um, extraordinary. The heroes of the engineering world were interested in all of life, not just engineering. Harry finished the lecture by setting the students an assignment that most artists would struggle with. They had to paint an emotion, then write 50 words about it on the back. And it was assessed and marked towards their final grade, so they had to take it seriously. And while the lecture was going on, and. The very first year was quite special. I had people from my office turning their drawing office into an artist's studio. So for four years they'd been going to this drawing office doing drawings and calculations. And suddenly all that was gone. The tables were covered in butcher paper. There was all the canvases there, A3 canvas for every student. All the paints were out, all the colours, the water, the brushes. And I wanted to see their reaction when they saw that. So I left the lecture room as soon as I could and followed them. But there was a crowd outside the door. No student was game enough to go into the room. They thought what had happened. They'd never seen that before and they didn't feel able to go into this space. Must have thought they'd had the wrong room. Or... They must have. Yeah. Must have. Wow. That was a wonderful moment yeah. to see them. I did it for 10 years, and this year I've passed the baton on to the current CEO of Partridge, Eamon Madden, and he's just given his first lecture, which is different to mine, and he set them a different problem. So he's doing things a little bit differently. It's been an extraordinary privilege to see into the, the hearts of a lot of these students who are prepared to have a go and um, try to express an emotion. It's mm. very hard for them. Mm. They haven't had any humanities at all, not a single ex- exposure to any um, photography art in their formal studies. And then suddenly they're asked to paint an emotion. Mm, what a legacy. I find that incredible. I asked Harry, what's the one thing architects and landscape architects could do to have a better relationship with their project teams? His reply is pretty blunt. What I notice in the architect's profession is level of arrogance. You have the annual awards for architects, which is, look at me, look at me, how great am I? You know, I've won again. I mean, do doctors give awards for the the best heart transplant? You know, there's the best knee reconstruction. Oh, great, look at what he's done, fabulous. Or accountants, do they do it? Lawyers, do they have excellence because I won this case? It doesn't happen. But architects continually want to pat each other on the back. And that is a sort of a self-serving 
loop that compounds this arrogance. So this poor engineer comes in, he's got his fixed ideas about how many columns he wants in the space. The architect comes in and thinks that the engineer's a complete dickhead because he knows he's thinking that. And so it's a recipe for miscommunication from day one. So one side is fixed in their ways and the other side is um, arrogant. Not completely arrogant, yeah, nicely arrogant, pleasant and all that, nevertheless arrogant. So that just fascinates me. And I guess I don't, I don't really know a solution to that. Um, some of the universities are trying something. They've got combined degrees now. Right. Where it's a five-year course and you'll come out with your um, undergraduate degree in architecture and then you'll come out with a full degree in engineering. So Right. So it's actually like a dual degree? It's a dual degree. So Sydney University does that and it's been doing it for about six or seven years mm. and New South Wales University does it as well. I think that can start to break it down. Yeah, it's got to be a two-way thing, doesn't it? That has to be has two to ways. Be. So what about thinking about a young engineer starting out in the profession now? What advice would you give graduating students, graduating engineering students? The, we all live in a box. We think in a box. Um, but that's very boring because it's all your ideas and ideas of similar people to you enter and live in the box. Um, creativity only comes when you can somehow get out of the box. People say you need to think outside the box. It, it's easy and trite to say that, but it's hard to do. I mean, how do you decide to think out the box? It's like jumping over your own kneecaps. You can't do it. <laughs> But, but I think you can live a life outside the box. You can deliberately go in places that are outside your comfort zone. You, you can become more curious. Albert Einstein said, I'm the same as everyone else except that I'm passionately curious. So you can become curious. You, you can put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Take up public speaking. Take up some extreme sport. So you're outside your comfort zone. And when you're outside your comfort zone, there's more possibility of thinking new thoughts. I think that's one of the most um, satisfying things a human being can do, is to have a brand new thought. A thought that you've never th conceived possible before, I and mean, it just comes to you. But it won't come if you're in a comfortable box. So you have to be outside that. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know. Tell me the design communicators that inspire you, or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash digbeneathdesign. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunea Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. <laughs>